Hi, and welcome to Series 5, Episode 7 of the Canny Conversations podcast, powered by the Pathway Group. My name's Mark Wakeley, and I'm one of the team who bring you these podcasts each week. In this series, Saf will be talking to some of the business people he has met and worked with in his 23 years at the heart of the West Midlands business community. In this week's podcast, we have the first part of Safraz's conversation with Rachel Jagger-Thomas from JTL, a national training provider in England and Wales for the electrical, plumbing and heating industries, and a member of the Multicultural Apprenticeship Alliance. Rachel is the Diversity, Safeguarding and Inclusion Advisor for JTL. She's over 13 years experience working in equality, diversity and inclusion roles across higher education, further education, and now in industry training. In her conversation with Safraz, Rachel shares her insights from her career journey and diverse experiences living and working internationally. They discuss how the dialogue and language around diversity, equality, and inclusion has evolved over the past decade, moving from compliance to a more active engagement. Rachel also talks about some examples of the positive changes she's seen in some organisations taking proactive steps for inclusion, while also acknowledging there is still further progress needed in the sector. They also look at improving gender equality and representation of minority groups in trades. So let's hear from Rachel, and first of all, Safraz. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us on Canning Conversations podcast. We're recording in Birmingham. And I believe you've had a four-hour, nearly four-hour drive, so much, <laughs> much appreciated. In terms of Canny Conversations podcast, this podcast has been going for a number of years now, and uh, we've changed a little bit of tact. And uh, the idea uh, in terms of this series is to try and get to know the people behind the brands that we work with, particularly with regard to Multicultural Apprenticeship Alliance, the Multicultural Apprenticeship Awards. And you're an avid supporter, you're a, a big lead within the within the sector you're a thought leader you're an influencer particularly with regard to the edi dei aspect of a diversity equity inclusion talk to us a little bit about the role that you're doing and more importantly we're going to delve a little bit deeper in terms of uh, the journey that's got you here and then we're going to go further in terms of jtl the brand and what does it do and some of the issues within the sector and and so those conversations but let's start off in terms of firstly your role and then we'll ask a little bit more in terms of what got you here well Saf, first of all thank you very very much as well for inviting me to be part of the canny conversation series as well um as you probably know, I'm always somebody who's got plenty to say. <laughs> absolutely, but all, 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 all things which are absolutely either positive or making a difference. So it's, it's about the right, right yeah. aspect. Of yeah. So, so in terms of my role at the moment, I'm a diversity, safeguarding and inclusion advisor for JTL. I joined JTL about five years ago now. And my role really has got, I would say, three parts to it. So the first part of my work is very much around supporting JTL uh, internally in terms of, of compliance, in terms of diversity and inclusion. Also working alongside my colleagues in management, alongside the board in terms of translating some of our objectives in relation to equality, diversity and inclusion into practical delivery on a day-to-day basis. I also get very much involved as well in terms of a lot of the support working with our apprentices, Mm. uh, listening to them, understanding 
what we need to do. And also, I think the joke is they often say that my tombstone's only going to have two words on it, Saf, <laughs> which are so what? So what? Um, <laughs> <laughs> because for me, um, it's very much when we hear about challenges in the sector or things, I'm like, okay, so what so are we what? going to do about this? So how are we going to change it? So what's the impact? So what do we need to do? And that translates into things such as advising on the DNI training that all our apprentices do um, in terms of thinking about when you're a 16-year-old, perhaps coming into the, the sector, you're moving from having worked in a school environment into the real world. What does DNI mean? What what does it mean to to work and be around a, a professional? What do you need to understand? How should you treat others and how should you expect to be treated as well? And really, I suppose I see a lot of my role um, in that aspect as I'm very much somebody who throws pebbles into ponds because I view our apprentices as sort of all these change agents going out into the industry who can be changing the future of the sector. And I feel very, very privileged that I get to deal with that. The third part of my role is more around some of the safeguarding side of things as well, which is really in terms of supporting around conversations where perhaps things aren't going as they should be for apprentices. And that can involve using um, my skills, knowledge and understanding in both supporting the apprentices, but perhaps also liaising with employers as well in terms of looking to seek resolution or try and work together in terms of identifying a way forward for people. Thank you for that, Rachel. Just for for those people that may not know, JTL is a charity. It's a charitable organisation, started off as a company limited by guarantee, initiated by the uh, a number of people, the union, Unite the Union and ECA, Electrical Contractors Association. Uh, Some of the directors of both Unite and ECA sit now on the board of uh, JTL. As an organisation, you know, if you go and read the articles and memorandum and articles of association, it talks about to encourage training of persons employed in the electrical, installation, engineering industry and such other industries as the trustees may decide. So that's just in terms of quoting from the Memorandum on Articles Association. But it is, I think this the vision that you've got, which I'm going to read out here, is to be the training organisation of choice to the building services engineering sector. That's right. And I yeah. believe JTL do just more than a third of all apprenticeships within the, particularly the electrical sector. So in terms of numbers, we do... 3,000 plus in terms of learners a year, is that, is that right? Um, well, we work with um, uh, over 3,000 employers. employers. We have around between seven and 8,000 apprentices that we're assessing. Okay. Um, and we work with organisations ranging from um, large multinationals through to um, small and medium-sized uh, enterprises as well in terms of the work that we do. Okay, fantastic. And we're a predominant, I'd say predominantly in England, but England and Wales um, we're a national provider across England and Wales. And uh, you're right, Saf, and when people say what is building engineering services, it's really it's apprenticeships in electrical, plumbing and heating and ventilation is, is what we do. And in terms of staff workforce, um, I've got here, and maybe this, the figures might be slightly out, just more than 360 people uh, full time. Yeah, um, yeah. It's about 400 people here, four, yeah. 400. Yeah, between 350 and 400 people, okay, yeah. fantastic. So, being here five years, mm-hmm. uh, what was the, the lead objective in terms of getting you here as the advisor leading, particularly with all the experience that you've got on safeguarding, diversity, equity, inclusion? What yeah. was the remit? Yeah, well, the remit, when, when I was recruited myself and a colleague of mine, we were recruited, some of it was um, JTL's business model has evolved quite a lot yeah. insofar as um, over the last few years, 
JTL has developed more centers of our own in yeah. terms of our structure. And as part of the work we were doing there, we wanted to ensure that we were able to, to support an expanded footprint effectively in terms of the work that we were doing ourselves rather than necessarily through partner colleges mm. um, and delivery partners, which had been the historical model that we're working on. One of the other things that was very, very key as well for JTL as an organisation was looking to continue the journey that had been started within the organisation in terms of equality, diversity and inclusion around seeking to influence change in the sector. I mean, one of our charitable objectives and one of our aims is we say that we seek to influence and encourage positive change in our sector. Historically, I don't think it's any great shakes and anybody would deny. It is a sector that has been very predominantly one where recruitment was people were recruited because of somebody that they knew in their family. And if we actually look at the industry, I think if I go back to about 2019, when we looked at some data nationally, still around 2% of all trades professionals in our sector identify as female. And it was around 6% of trades professionals came from a black, Asian or minority ethnic community. And we're working in a sector where we all know that there is a real need for skill and talent. And it takes four years to train as an electrician. It's not a quick job. It is a, a long program. And one of the things that we're saying is actually there are so many talented people who historically haven't considered this as a sector for mm. them. And that's something that needs to change. And part of the work that we're doing is trying to help the industry almost hold a mirror up to itself and say, how can we change things? But so what can we do mm. about it? So what can we do to change? And so what do we need to do to encourage talent into our sector and encourage people in who historically may have thought, actually, that's not the space for me. It's all about making, as you said, making the difference and asking the, asking the questions. Yeah. So in terms of obviously five years, and nearly, near five years in terms of the role, there's no doubt you know, you're an influencer in the marketplace. You, you know, you're always at the conferences. You're always speaking within the sector. A lot of people know you within the sector because you're, you're there. Uh, you show up and and you do what you do, you know, which is uh, you put yourself forward and you know you're always challenging and have those having those conversations, particularly with regard to some of the bigger conversations with, within the sector. Prior to that, you were at uh, working at a university in the higher education space. Tell us a little bit about the Plymouth University days. You know, you were there for nearly six years, yeah. again leading with regard to diversity, equity, inclusion. But I, I would suspect the challenges possibly were a little bit different. Uh, within within that space and some of the work that you were doing? Yeah, very much so. I mean, the, the reason that um, I, I, moved, I, I was invited to, to go and work in Plymouth was it seemed to be a natural progression from some mm. of the work that I've been doing as an EDI manager with the Isle of Wight College and places prior to that. And again, really working within higher education, uh, one of the big challenges there that I was very, very aware of was, again, there are still some great challenges in terms of ensuring that diverse mm. talent is, is getting recognised. One of the things that historically people don't necessarily always realise is that within higher education, there were real challenges in academia, particularly around the progression of women. 
And it was one of the things that I was very interested in was looking at gender equity. And so a lot of the work that I did with Plymouth University was not just around women, but equally men in terms of underrepresentation and looking at what we could do in terms of trying to support equity within higher education. So I did a lot of work with um, not just looking at the traditional things you'd expect us to look at in terms of what were our equality objectives in terms of our public sector equality duty. It was looking at things like we wanted to become a member of Stonewall, for example, and it was looking at, so what did that mean? So how we were going to do this? So what did it mean to really have a voice in terms of change? It was looking at how we could realise some of that on a day-to-day basis. But one of the things that I was very involved in and I was very, very proud of was work that I did for the university, but also on a national basis in terms of uh, supporting with a accreditation scheme called Athena Swan, which Athena Swan was around gender equity and it was around holding a mirror up to your organisation and using data and detailed analysis to look at where some of the pinch points were in your organisation. Were there challenges in terms of your recruitment approach? Were there challenges in relation to uh, your, your, your progression? What was happening in terms of succession? What was happening in training for students and for staff um, in terms of looking to encourage people to get involved perhaps in areas of academia that they, they may not have um, considered previously? Um, and that was something that was really, really sort of talking to the sector, but talking to, to the university and saying, so what are we going to do? Our data show that there are challenges here. So what are we going to do? How are we going to move it forward without, while still recognising, you know, the, the, the unique aspects that were a university in terms of what they were looking to do? I mean, Rachel, I mean, I was looking through some of our notes and uh, uh, I worked out there's approximately 13, 14 years that you've been in the space of diversity, equity, inclusion, yeah. whether it's as a sort of a manager or whether it's as a diversity, inclusion lead, uh, whatever the job title, you've mm. been in that, in, that, in that space for, yeah. for 13, 13 plus years. What has changed in those 13 years? What are the conversations? I mean, you mentioned the word equity. I mean, it's probably not a word that we were using possibly five years ago. We were talking about quality at the time. Mm. But what sort of, how has the language evolved? What are the sort of conversations? You know, is there more conversations happening in, in a sort of a boardroom environment that's, you know, with section, with uh, senior leaders? You know, where are the conversations happening in terms of particularly the, the topics that you, you spoke about in terms of representation or, you know, diversity or any of mm. those sort of, so what has been changed in the last 13 years and what are the sort of points that you you know you remember are the, the memorable points oh that's that's a big question yeah. <laughs> is, is this a lot there yeah um well I, I think if i if i were to wind it back to as you say sort of 13 14 years ago yeah. when i came into the sector um, I came out of a consultancy background and I'd had a fantastic career um, working internationally and working in uh, HR and change management. Yeah. I worked for an organisation called Accenture for many years mm. and I'd had wonderful opportunities to travel and live and work in different cultures and different organisations. But at the point I was coming into the sector, it was when the Equality Act was just starting to come in. And one of the things with the Equality Act was it was a massive shift from a, in a, a legislative perspective for the UK. So one of my initial roles really was in terms of working with further education, looking at how we translated the Equality Act into what did it mean in terms of the change in, in legislation and the, the, the move 
um, that there was in the approach. And I would say one of the things that I saw was in the first few years, it, it was very much moving from a people trying to get their heads around it in terms of what the new legislation was and how it worked into translating that into practical. So what does it mean? So for example, coming from a consultancy background, one of the things that was very important was looking at data, looking at analytics. So, so, so what is our data telling us? What are the hot topics that we need to deal with? What are the, you know, the, the big issues that we, we need to address so that we could try and be more uh, systematic, I think, in the way we were approaching equality, diversity and inclusion so that we were actually delivering what it was about, which is the end of the day, it's about levelling the playing field for everybody. It's around respect. It's around making sure people feel included and have a voice, but using skills and knowledge to try and to bring that into the fore. I would say in the sector uh, or, or in equality, diversity and inclusion as a whole, we have started to see a shift in the language. It was very much people talking about equality, whereas I don't talk about equality. I talk about equality of opportunity. And that is something that is really, really important. It's about the equality of the opportunity that somebody has. And getting people to think that way was was a big shift for a lot of people because it was taking it from words on a piece of paper to mm. the reality of what does it actually mean. I've seen a lot of organisations who have said, actually, we do understand the need for more diverse talent. We understand the importance of looking to ensure that we are just gaining from all the skills and talent that there is out there. But a lot of organisations not quite sure how to do it. I've also seen quite a lot of organisations, possibly slightly controversial statement, who mm. I think do it because it seems like a badge and... It's something that people say, oh, it's something that we need to do, rather than it really being something that they believed in. More of a tick box exercise. Tick box as a, exercise, as a, as yeah. Post a genuine um, intention. And rather than that. And I, I think for one of the things that when I was when I was considering JTL, um, one of the things that really attracted me to JTL as an organization was I remember one of the questions I asked at the interview was how did JTL describe its organizational soul? Okay. <laughs> kind of through people a bit. Yeah. Um, not in, I'm not at all. Because for me, that was around, is this an organisation that really believes in respect and dignity and inclusion? And if, you know, we're, we're talking about looking at moving forward in a sector, is it just a tech box exercise or is it something that's a genuine heartfelt thing from an organisation? So I think, Saf, going back to the question of what have I seen change, I think generally I work at the sector, I have seen people initially who started out with the head scratching, what is mm. equality, diversity, what does it all mean, into yeah. some organisations who really get it and have been uh, proactive in looking to listen and looking to change and looking to really understand what inclusion means. Yeah. And I've seen other organisations who I think are still sadly, in the tick box space. Um, over the last few years, I think there's been a big realisation in terms of the fact that in the UK in particular, I think we've lost ground. I think uh, global events, sadly, have had a, uh, made things perhaps go back one step, maybe yeah. two steps. Mm. Um, and that saddens me. Uh, but as a practitioner, <laughs> he says, well, it just means we've got to do it all again. But hopefully we're now in a position where the dialogue around equality, diversity and inclusion has moved forward 
that actually we're now getting more voices involved in the de- in the debate, and that for me is a really really important factor. And I think it's become more honest as a conversation than it was in the past, perhaps. Changing tack a little bit, uh, Rachel. You've had a diverse career, uh, no doubt, and and you know you've already mentioned we've all we've spoken about un- the university, we spoke about the college. You've you know you've dropped uh, the the Isle of Wight College in there, Accenture. You know, you've mentioned that as well in terms of the consulting element of it. But let's go back in terms of obviously your initial sort of education qualifications. Mm-hmm. I, I believe you had a degree in geography and Russia, Russian. Yes, uh, <laughs> and that was uh, a starting point in terms of the journey into di- being a, a champion of diversity, equity, inclusion. So, how is suddenly doing geography in Russia lead to, for you to be a champion and a thought leader influencer within this market, within this space? <laughs> Let's connect. Let's connect. Let's connect the dots and uh, and see how see how we how we how we get here. I was going to say if you can work it out, can you let me know, please? <laughs> so to talk, yeah. talk to you know you you yeah. and I were having a fantastic conversation earlier on. I wish we had recorded some of it, and obviously mm. we're going to try and get that out. But you talked about being a, a being a womble and some of the experiences that you've had in terms of you know some of the jobs that you've had yeah. and some of the challenges that you've had, and and, I, and I'm thinking to myself. You know, you know, maybe I've pigeonholed, pigeonholed you a little bit in terms of, <laughs> Rachel. I'm, I'm really, you know, so, you know, really astounded by some of the, uh, some of the opportunities. But yeah, help us out. Just connect from okay. the from the from the geography on the Russian to uh, to some of the, some of these points that we've okay, mentioned today. Okay, that's actually fine. <laughs> I knew you were going to ask me that. Okay. So, well, I'm a Yorkshire lass at heart. Yeah. I'm originally from West Yorkshire. Okay. And was very lucky, grew up in a family where uh, I was the eldest daughter, eldest of two. I was the first one in my family to go to university. Yes, yeah. But I think very much in terms of, uh, my dad used to tell me, apparently from the age of five, I used to say I was going to university. Okay. Didn't know what I was going to do. Very driven in terms of, yeah, I've got to go. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know what it was about, but I was going there. But yeah. I think some of that was, I, I was very lucky that I grew up in a family where I had uh, a dad in particular who was like, girls can do anything. And, you know, he was a post- post-war baby. You know, when he went to college, he wanted to be a chef. They said, we don't need chefs, you're going to be a plumber. Yeah. So... <laughs> Okay. So apprenticeships were kind of in the family. Yeah. I grew up in West Yorkshire, which yeah. was a very diverse, uh, very, very diverse community. Yeah. I had friends from all communities all um, when I was growing up, which was wonderful. So I'd always grown up in a very, very diverse environment. And being the first one to go to university, um, my family, I suppose perhaps in some ways these days when people start to look at degree apprenticeships and what's it all about and how does it mm. fit together, my parents and career advisors were kind of scratching their heads a wee bit and were going, we, we, we don't really know. Mm. Um, and I think the best piece of career advice I was given was do something you're going to enjoy because okay. if you enjoy it, you'll do well. So on that basis, I'd loved geography, but I loved the human geography, sort of more the, the social justice, the understanding of the world side of it. Mm. And I'd very much enjoyed learning languages. So I cavalierly decided that I would uh, do a degree in geography and Russian. Yeah. Um, but you had no exposure to Russian before? No, 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 no. no nothing not at all, yeah, yeah. No. So this is completely sort of... <laughs> That whole challenge of let, yeah. being open-minded, let's, yeah. let's go for it. Yeah. Okay. So it was people that said, well, 
why don't you, you know, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'll learn Russian. And they said, why? I said, well, why not? Um, so, wow. so that was something. And you're right, that then led me to, to university. So I went from having been in West Yorkshire to being, moving, Big getting smoke. on the... Pardon me? The Big, the big smoke. smoke, yeah. 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 So, yeah, getting on the National Express bus at the age of 18, as you did yeah, with your yeah. suitcase, and, yeah, moving to live in the east end of London and go to university. Yeah. So, which, again, was an amazing experience. As I say, you know, I was I was living there. I had to do all sorts of different roles, as you did as a student. Yeah. So, as I've mentioned, I've done things from, I say, being a womble, um, at a food fair, which was dressed up and being a litter picker, to yeah. um, I worked tying bows for many years on boxes mm. of chocolates. Mm. I also worked in my summers uh, from university as a residential childcare officer, supporting young adults with uh, profound learning needs in respite care. And when I wasn't doing that, if I had any money that I'd managed to save, I, I did like to try and travel a little bit as well. Mm. So, uh, and, I mean, university was amazing. It really fed into sort of the travel bug for me. I mean, I, I had the experience of living in the former Soviet Union as part of my degree and traveling there. And again, I think talking about me as a practitioner, um, when I was at university, that was one of the things. First of all, when I was overseas, it was being in a country where I'd been learning the language for 12 months, mm. I was sent to live there. Um, yeah. And I had to work out how I could navigate the country. I had to work out how I could navigate the culture. I had to work out how I could continue with my studies. And I was the person who didn't understand what a lot of people were saying to me or I didn't quite look the same as people. Mm. And mm. I'm a very reflective practitioner. Yeah. And I think that for me was an experience. There, there were others as well, Saf, yeah. but that was an experience of how... I was accepted or welcomed by people was one of the things. And our people also made assumptions about me as well. It was something that, that was very, very interesting. We, I know we were talking before and we were talking about where did the interest in sort of inclusion and equality really come from? Mm. And I, I remember we were talking about yeah. I during my degree, I, I had an opportunity to study. Uh, it was very early days everybody these days will say it's quite common but back then it was it was quite new um where i, I was uh, one of the things that i was reading was uh, related to the geography of social justice mm. and for me that was a real eye opener insofar as looking at how policy and practice um could influence and impact on people and life chances that people had and it was one of the things that actually made me quite angry and I was like, this is not fair. And it was one of the things for me that was really, really important longer term. And as I say, as I go through my career, I was lucky enough to have opportunities that other people didn't have. Mm. And so for me, it very much, even from the early days without me realising it, was a bit of an internal call to arms of around, if I can do things to support other people, that is what I would like to see happening in my career. Rachel, one thing, I mean, you're one of the very few people that I know who's sort of worked globally. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, people sometimes work in one country for the same employer and so forth, but you've worked uh, in a number of settings that sort of, mm -hmm. you know, so talk to us a little bit about the diversity of work that you, you've had and the experience that you've had and also in terms of the cultures that you've you've experienced and, and particularly in terms of the work environment and so any takeaways and any sort of memorable moments and points. Okay, absolutely. <laughs> well, okay, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, yeah, you're absolutely right. I was incredibly lucky in that particularly sort of during my consultancy days, I worked out in the US, yeah. um, helped setting up um, a joint venture company out there. I helped develop their career model 
yeah. for them and then help bring that back to to the UK and help set up the UK organisation. I'd also worked with uh, lots of multinationals where I've worked in Europe and again in the US and I was very, very excited and a lot of my colleagues were very jealous when I was posted out to Mauritius for uh, a period of time which in Mauritius I was helping with in a part of our global delivery network for Accenture and my role out there was working with the local team um, and working with partners from different sort of countries that were were sort of working with multinational companies in terms of selling outsourcing work around how we were going to bring this into the delivery centre. But more importantly, my role was around the recruitment um, and supporting the team in terms of processes and how we we organised what we were doing, which was really, really interesting for me because I was working with a very, very diverse team on a daily basis. I could be on calls with colleagues in America. Um, I could be talking to uh, process leads in the Czech Republic. I could be talking to colleagues in France. And then I was also working with the local team in Mauritius as well. And one of the big things that was really, really fascinating about that was understanding different cultures and... (coughs) learning how we we take things from each other but also how we understand what each other is saying so for example you know um i I remember being involved where we were doing some training around cultural awareness around the 101 ways you can say no um (laughs) and sometimes people really are saying no and sometimes people aren't saying no at all but it's all about understanding culture and it's all about getting to know people and that was one of the, the the great things there it was also interesting for me as well there being being a manager and supporting and coaching the team because i'd been used to working with international teams where I'd very much use a coaching style and it was getting to understand how that worked and how that translated in terms of Mm. working in a different country was something that was very very interesting as well but I think uh, I know one of the ones we were giggling about before staff as well was I think one of the experiences for me and again is something that I very much take into my own practice was as you know I'm a mum and I remember being asked to go and work on a project when I was probably about six months pregnant and I was asked to work in Japan (laughs) which was quite interesting because I didn't speak the language I had to work through a translator for all of the work that I was doing I was there to support knowledge share and for people in Japan it was uh, back then it was quite unusual for a pregnant woman to be Mm. in the office Mm. it was also extremely unusual for a western pregnant woman to be in the office as well and I did have times where everybody was very wonderful, don't get me wrong, and I was incredibly well looked after, but I didn't look like anybody else. I couldn't speak the language, and I didn't necessarily get the social cues, and it it wasn't that I wasn't a clever, well-educated person. It was just I was in a completely different environment from one I'd ever lived and worked in before, And, and that was hard. And it was one of those things that really, really, I think, has always stayed with me was, A, how did I deal with that? Because I had a team of people who were looking at how was I coping because I'd been asked to be a role model and how was I supporting the business side of it? But then I would go home and I was like, can I eat that? Can I go there? I can't even get the underground. I have to get a taxi because I can't read the signs because they're in Japanese. And it really makes you feel incredibly lonely and incredibly isolated. And I think that for me, in terms of a lot of the work I do, And I say to people, everything I say is all about the so what, and it's about levelling the playing field in terms of what we do. The thing was, 
I always remember how that made me feel. And I think, actually, I'm a really bright, I'm a really capable person. I've got skills and talent, but nobody could see that. All they could mm. see was what they saw. And for me, in terms of the work that I do, and we talk about equity and we talk about equality of opportunity, yeah. for me, it's about saying, let's see beyond, let's see the real person, let's see the skills and talents, mm. not let make assumptions about people. Mm. And that for me is really, really important. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, that was a very No, no, fantastic. No, no, I appreciate, no, appreciate that. <laughs> Rachel, I mean, whilst you were talking, I mean, a thought came in my mind. I mean, I remember a conversation I had with a, a friend of a friend. We were at a networking event and uh, he had an opportunity to go abroad. And he made a comment, which was, uh, you know, working for one blue chip company is the same as another. It uh, doesn't matter really what, what country it is. And uh, uh, I mean, I, I mean, he wasn't asking for advice. And I just said, I'm sure there's a big difference in terms of the mm. culture and there's still going to be a lot of takeaways. Would you say, you know, in terms of obviously going abroad, there's, there is a, a huge, vast learning in terms of opening your mind, in terms of some of these experiences and so forth. And it does challenge you as a person, particularly in terms of perceptions that we have and how we come across and how people see us. We start sort of looking at ourselves in a slightly different way and mm. also start looking at the world in a different way. I think I would agree with you that you do learn a lot. Yeah. If you choose to. So it's up to the person how open-minded they are and whether they push themselves. So Absolutely. Yeah. I think that if, you, if, if you're working overseas, depending on the role you're doing, at yeah. times it's very easy to, you're in your accommodation, you go to work, you go back to your accommodation. And these days you probably FaceTime your family at home. You're more connected, are you, in terms of you know, yeah. what's going on here? Yeah, but it is very easy to stay in this little work Cocoon. world. Cocoon. However, my personal, this is very much my personal view, is I think if you do that, you are losing so much because you don't get to understand the place you are. Yeah. You don't get to understand the culture. You don't get to experience the, the world around you. And I genuinely believe that it's through our interactions and connections with other people. That's what rounds us as individuals and really, really broadens out our thinking as well and our understanding. So I would say that, yes, going and working in different cultures or meeting people down the road from different cultures and communities is one of the, the richest things that we can have in life. That's where we have to leave our conversation between Safraz and Rachel Jagger-Thomas from JTL. You'll be able to hear the second half of that chat in next week's episode of Canny Conversations, which will be out on Thursday the 26th of October. In part two of their conversation, their discussion centres on the work being done to make the technical trades more welcoming for all, while acknowledging there are still challenges around the perception, bias and stereotypes that need to be addressed. If you're new to the podcast, let me tell you there are already 64 other Canny Conversation podcast episodes out there. And you can listen to all those past episodes by searching for Canny Conversations on your preferred podcast platform or go to 1386audio.com forward slash have a listen. We'd also like you to review, subscribe or follow the podcast and please tell your friends and colleagues about us. If you'd like to know more, then go to cannyconversationspodcasts.co.uk or Safraz's website, which is safraz.co.uk. Safraz Ali has also written a series of easy-to-follow business books, Canny Bites. These are available from cannybites.co.uk forward slash buy the book. As I said, we'll be back next week with part two of our conversation between Safraz and Rachel. So until then, we hope you have a good week. 
This is a 1386 audio production. 